Here comes Texas. Hello everybody and welcome to the conversation. I'm David Schuster. All eyes are on the Lone Star State. Voting there begins in three weeks. Primaries, of course, Republican and Democratic side. The early vote starts February the 14th. This will be the first test across the nation of some of these new restrictive ballot issues that Republicans have been putting in place. And here to talk about this is Chuck Rocha. He's a progressive activist who's the president of Solidarity Strategies. He's also worked on several campaigns, including Bernie Sanders' presidential campaigns both times. Chuck, good to have you on the program. First of all, how's it going in Texas with these efforts to try to get out the vote and get people organized? It's a crazy time in Texas. Uh, lots of folks are doing lots of mobilization because of the Democratic primaries that are happening across a lot of different local elections, which is rarely covered in politics. We love the sexy governor's race with Beto O'Rourke, and it is very sexy. And the congressional races and the multi-candidate primaries that we see in lots of races that I'm sure we're going to talk about. But what people don't realize that in places like in Hildago County, down in the Rio Grande Valley, there's a lot of local judge races, district attorney races, and state rep races where lots and lots of local people who are tied really closely to those politicians are working hard right now because early vote starts in two weeks, if you can believe it. So uh, given some of the restrictions that now if you're gonna cast an early vote, you have to include a driver's license number or the last four digits of your social security or a state ID number. And if you don't have those, then you gotta indicate you don't have one. Given some of those restrictions, uh, what does that do in terms of shaping these races? Does it help say the base of both parties uh, because those are the people who perhaps might be most uh, determined to vote? Well, it makes it hard on old folks. Now, old folks normally in the state of Texas who vote by mail. Now, keep in mind, Texas is still the most restricted state in the country to vote by mail. So you can't just show up. You've got to literally be gone from out of town. And the only way you can get a permanent absentee ballot is be over 65 and have some handicap of some kind. So those people, so even though it's the most restricted, over half of the applications in Harris County, that's Houston for all of you folks scoring at home, have rejected the applications because, David, of what you've talked about with these new restrictions. And let's think about who wouldn't have a driver's license. Old people who don't drive no more, folks that can't afford a car that take public transportation. These are the kind of folks that are being disenfranchised, and that's the shame of this. If you don't have a social security number, maybe you have some other EIN number because you're a recent immigrant and a US citizen, but you don't have a social, this is again, people of color, old people. This is who the Republican Texas don't want to vote because they're trying to hang on to a majority, even though all the growth in the state of Texas has come from people of color, mainly Latinos. Is there a warning system that if somebody has their early application rejected, do they get told, hey, it didn't work, you gotta try again? I mean, because I I would imagine if you don't know, then you just think, "Oh, I voted and, and that's that. David, that is a great question. And we're working on over 10 races at my firm, Solidarity Strategies, right now in Texas. And we are not trusting the counties who, by the way, some counties are run by Democrats, some counties are run by Republicans. And what we're finding is in the counties that are run by Democrats, they're doing a pretty decent job at calling because there's not that many of a scale. Folks that are getting rejected, it's not like millions, it's hundreds of ballots because, again, there's not that many people who can vote by mail to begin with. And so Democratic county courts and county, uh, what we call county clerks are trying to do a good job at notifying them. But in places where they're Republican county clerks, they don't do as good a job worrying about folks being notified. Do you have any particular Democratic races, Democratic primaries that you're looking at in terms of a bellwether as far as where the Democratic mood is right now? 
There's a few of them. And again, I want to talk about the congressional races that are happening. We just went through redistricting in Texas where the Republican state legislature redrew and added two new congressional seats in Texas and drew lines that were very, very favorable to Republicans, which is no surprise to my friends back home in the Lone Star State. But let me draw your attention to two places. One is in the Rio Grande Valley in the city of McAllen, where Congressman Vicente Gonzalez moved to the next congressional race because his house got drawn into there, leaving a marginal seat that swung 20 points from the Democrats to the Republicans last time because of Donald Trump. And now after redistricting is a true 50-50 district. And there's four people running down there. You have a woman running from the left named Michelle. You have a veteran running named Ruben. You have a guy running that, in full disclosure, we're working for, John Villarreal Rigney, a small businessman, somebody who pulled himself up from his bootstraps. And he is a really good fit for that district, has a construction company, works with lots of legal cases. And then you have another woman there running who used to serve in the administration in D.C. Whoever wins that primary will determine how well we do there in the general election. So watching where this electorate goes in the primary, do they pick a woman from the left? Do they pick a small business person like John? Do they pick somebody with Washington experience? That's what we're really keeping our eye on. And which kind of Democrat will they elect in these congressional seats? And do you get a sense that the Democratic mood right now is uh, is towards pragmatism, political pragmatism? In other words, trying to find a candidate that has a really perhaps the best chance of winning in a swing district in the fall, or is the energy right now coming from progressives who are tired of what's been going on in Washington and say, you know what, to hell with the centrist, to hell with the establishment Democrats, we're charting our own path, we're gonna bring the energy. I think I'm seeing both. There's one thing for sure is that we're not gonna see the turnout that we saw in 2018 when you had Donald Trump in the White House, which was the last time we had an off-year election, there's just not that energy there because you don't have this real lightning rod, which is Donald Trump out there. So I think the turnout will be lower than it was in 18, of course, and probably down around the 2014 levels. And so what you see, because normally the only people that vote in the Democratic primary are old Democrats, old Mexicans like me who always show up and vote. So you have people down there like Jessica Cisneros, who's running against a longtime Democratic incumbent uh, Henry Cuellar, who that is her strategy is to try to get a whole bunch of young brown progressives out to vote against a very pro-business, pro-life Democrat like Henry Cuellar. So you're seeing that play out in real time in the Texas 28th congressional district. I want to ask you about the Republican side and take off your Democratic hat for a second and just you're a political expert across across the spectrum. What is going on with the Texas Governor Greg Abbott? I mean, the latest polls show that he's in the race of his life against Alan West, the former Republican Party chair. What is it the Republicans in Texas don't like about Abbott? Well, sometimes when you kick the caged dog in the backyard, you don't feed him enough. Sometimes you get bit. And that's what's happening with these Republicans is they've played footsies with Donald Trump so much. And Greg Abbott is a crazy, in my opinion, right wing zealot who is very much aligned with the most conservative values that are out there. But guess what? It's not even conservative enough for these folks that fall in line and see Donald Trump as the party itself. So you could get somebody that says, you think that's crazy? Hold my beer and watch this, which is Alan West. And so that's what you see happening. And with all the bona fides that the governor has, the governor couldn't even keep the lights on in Texas when they got a little ice storm. And then two weeks later, got a million dollars from that power company who couldn't keep the lights on. Like you can't get much more corporate Republican than that, but it's still not good enough for this base that they've whipped into a fury over immigration, over taxes, over all of this nonsensical stuff. So what they're really getting now is what they have set up for themselves. 
We like to talk, of course, in the national media about uh, national trends and what sort of the prevailing winds are. But for people who are not in Texas, but, but for those of us who are very curious about what's going on there, what are some of the what are the issues that you see sort of really driving some of these races that uh, that might catch people who are not from Texas by surprise? So Republican primary voters, this is going to sound strange for somebody who ran Bernie Sanders' presidential campaign, but on the Republican side, where we've been doing a lot of polling and looking and seeing what Latinos care about, who've been switching over from Democrat to Republicans, it's immigration, it's taxes, it's critical race theory, it's all these obscure issues on the Republican side. And then when you go and you poll a Democratic primary voter, it's not strange to know that jobs in the economy is first with white primary voters. Education is first with Latino voters and then jobs in the economy. So normally it's these working class bedrock issues that Democratic primary voters are showing up to vote for in their primary. And Republicans have been hoodwinked by all of these dog whistles from the right. Immigrants are coming here to take your job. Critical race theory is going to run our children's lives. And that's what Republican primary voters are showing up to vote for or vote against. So there's a real contrast in who's showing up and why they're showing up. And given that contrast, I mean, it sounds to me like, I mean, some of the issues on the Republican side are a lot more shallow because they are more shallow. But does that portend good things, therefore, for Democrats? Because the Democrats now are already focused on the bedrock issues like jobs and the economy. And at a certain point, it feels like it's hard to sustain anger about critical race theory all the way until November. I think it's going to matter and be different state by state and district by district. Republicans have packed so many of these congressional districts with Republicans that there won't be a real a real salient election happening there. But in the 15th congressional district in Texas and a few others in Texas, pay attention there because I, I worry about the motivation to show up in November without a Donald Trump there to Republicans to use or for Donald Trump being there for a Democrat like me to use because I was using him as a lightning rod to get folks out. It'll be a real bellwether to see what happens in those districts and who can motivate people at the last minute to actually show up because that's the key at the end of the day is actually getting folks to show up. Chuck, there's a um, great deal of concern among Democrats about sort of the national drag from, from Joe Biden. Are you picking up uh, much of that in terms of the, the district by district polling that you're seeing in, in Texas? I saw some of that in the late summer around the way that we were pulling out of Afghanistan. And that was a drag on him everywhere. You're starting to see his numbers uh, pick up now that gas prices are starting to go down some and that folks are out there messaging more. You see Joe Biden who just announced that they're going up with over a million dollars of Spanish language advertising from one of the uh, C4s that are supporting him building back together to go tell Latinos what he's been doing to make their life better through the infrastructure bill by shots in arms, uh, money in your bank account. And that messaging is going a long way to start seeing his numbers start creep back up. And to the extent that Donald Trump continues to grab headlines by and his crazy claims about January 6th and about pardoning the January 6th insurrectionists and asking the committee to investigate Mike Pence, you subscribe to the idea that the more Donald Trump is talking about January 6th and the headlines involve him, the better it is for Democrats politically. Democrats need to get out and beat their chest about what they've done to help the American people. And while they're doing it, you can do these at the same time, Democrats. You can say what we've to deliver for you while looking over there at those crazy people at Donald Trump and the insurrectionists saying, while they want to literally destroy our government and we are here working for you. Democrats, don't be scared to lean into our successes. That was a brilliant thing that Donald Trump did when he was the president for all of his craziness. He took a lot of credit for a lot of Democratic ideas. 
Chuck Rocha, he is the president of Solidarity Strategies. He's a, a Texan, an activist who has worked on the Bernie Sanders campaigns, also advising, helping some campaigns that are underway there at the state level now. Chuck, thanks so much for doing this, we appreciate it. Thanks for having me. You got it. The rise of artificial intelligence. Welcome back to the conversation, I'm David Schuster. So many of you may have had the same experience that I've had lately. I go on YouTube and suddenly, what do you know? All the videos that I might be interested in that seem to sort of hit a certain nerve with me, my likes. Well, that's that's AI, it's the same thing when a certain news headline pops in my newsfeed related to things that I might be interested in, that's where AI is going. But there's some clear dangers with AI and they've been articulated in a remarkable new book by Jacob Ward. He's the technology correspondent for NBC News. He was the editor in chief of, wow, I'm spacing on it, Popular Mechanics? Popular science, very Popular close. Popular science, sorry, Jake. Uh, and anyway, the book is called The Loop, How Technology is Creating a World Without Choices and How to Fight Back. Uh, Jake, so good of you to do this. Um, first of all, when people talk about artificial intelligence, part one of the premises in your book is that there are patterns of human behavior that have been created by evolution. And essentially what AI is able to do is, is sort of pick up on those patterns, right? That's absolutely right, David. You know, you mentioned the word the nerve that you know a YouTube video hits, and that is what I was after in this book. Is trying to figure out what are the nerves being hit here. So I spent the better part of of about ten years talking to people both in technology and in behavioral science about the the nerves that that get hit. And so what we've learned is that basically in the last sort of hundred years really of, of behavioral science, the big takeaway is that we make a huge number of our decisions using an ancient instinctive kind of circuitry, the kind of circuitry that allowed us to spot calories and snakes and strangers and fire without really having to consciously process them. And all of that kept us alive for you know tens of thousands, if not perhaps millions of years. Well, now we are operating on, a, 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 we have a second system, a slow thinking brain that developed probably 70 to 100,000 years ago. And that is the one we're very proud of. It's what allowing, it's what's allowing you and I to talk today. It's what created politics and art and law and all these amazing abstract things that define us as humanity. Unfortunately, we are using the behavioral scientists say, mostly that ancient circuitry still. And that circuitry obeys very specific and measurable patterns. What I've sought to figure out is what's gonna happen when we really deploy these pattern recognition systems on us. And it turns out that from uh, you know how we make decisions about who we group together with to um, how we respond to certain emotions, all of that is pretty predictable. And it turns out that the technology industry is starting to figure that out. And even those with the best of intentions, could very well end up not just analyzing and predicting our behavior, but actually shaping it in the future. And that's why I wrote the book. So one of the dangers you point out is that the hiring decisions might be ultimately left to AI. I think there's already algorithms in place and artificial intelligence now in terms of which resumes get put into a certain pile and which don't. But everything, including, you know, I know you talked in your book with a federal judge about whether you could make the the bail system subject to AI. There's some real dangers in that, right? That's right. I mean, when we look at really any area of human life, you could imagine that there could be greater efficiency brought to it. And one of the problems that I'm seeing is the temptation to make everything more efficient is quite dangerous because it may actually cause us to abandon some really important critical faculties. So you mentioned a federal judge, and that's right. I spoke to this federal judge, Tino Cuellar, very smart and interesting person. He said, you know, we could make the process, for instance, of entering a 
guilty or not guilty plea vastly more efficient. That is a total pain right now. You gotta go and present yourself in front of the judge and there's multiple things, steps to it. There's days of, of appearances and paperwork to do. And he says, you know, we could do it with the swipe of a smartphone, but here's why we don't. It's a legal principle called weak perfection. We in fact want you to have to go through the pain in the butt of doing all of that because it's part of what activates your slow thinking brain. It actually gets you to take your time and think it through, right? We're, we're a culture based on the idea of Han Solo saying, never tell me the odds, I wanna, you know, I'm going with my gut. But the truth is we need systems that keep us thinking in this higher sort of slower, more, much more difficult, laborious way. And if we begin to just follow the verdict of an automated system for everything from hiring to loan making to bail, well, pretty soon I think what's gonna happen is we're gonna wind up just as beholden to those systems as I currently am to you know Google Maps when it comes to getting around even in my own town. And so that efficiency that we might get from AI comes at the cost of the human values that so many of us wanna sort of embrace. It also feels like that AI, and you point this out in the book, the money goes towards making more money with AI. So in other words, a benevolent use of AI, and I think you mentioned in one of your interviews an example of you know trying to identify where the lead paint problems might be for all the newborn children. Well, they don't have the money for it, but the people who do have the money are the ones who are gonna make even more money using AI striking us with our at our nerve center. That's absolutely right. AI could be tremendously beneficial in all walks of life, right? You have people doing academic experiments in which AI can be used to predict, you know, which police officers are most likely to kill someone wrongly based on all sorts of patterns in their training and which shifts they've been working. You know, we could use these systems to, like you say, strip lead paint out of the the apartments where kids are most likely to be poisoned simply by feeding birth certificates through a pattern recognition system. But no one's making money off of that, right? They're making money off selling us addictive ideas, off you know things like online casino simulators. That's one of the big bugaboos in in my book. You know, it's 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 not just that the technology is the problem. It is also, of course, that the money and you know the profit motive is so much of the problem. And you combine that with the fact that we are conditioned as humans. This is what all the behavioral scientists told me. We are conditioned as humans to accept the verdict of systems we don't understand. This is the essence of everything from superstition to, in this case, you know, believing AI when it says, this is the job candidate you should hire. We're just not equipped right now to push back against that. And as that becomes the norm, I think we're gonna be less and less equipped if we're not careful. And one of the things we also don't understand, or at least I was I was shocked to, to, to sort of read in the book that even people who create AI don't quite know how it works, that it's it's far more simpler than a lot of us realize. That's right. I mean, when you do surveys, you know, there've been big surveys of the leaders of of companies whose entire business model is based now on the idea of using an AI system to do something like, you know, determine the risk of insuring a certain group of people. And it turns out that when you ask those people, do you know how this system works? The vast majority of those executives have no idea. And then when they're asked, do you care that you don't know whether it how it works? The vast majority of them do not care. We are not built to look into these systems. And that's why there is a big technical push for something called explainability in AI. But the problem is that really doesn't, again, offer you a way to make money. The money comes from the efficiency. And that's why so many of us wind up with it in our laps. And unfortunately, our brains are just built to assume that because this system knows which YouTube video I'm going to like next, it must know me 
No, it's just drawing inference based on other people like me and the patterns in their behavior. It's that it's very, very simple thing. And yet it's coming to take over some of the most sophisticated decisions we're gonna have to make. A couple of weeks ago, we had somebody who was who was on who was talking about how China is essentially leap leap years ahead of the United States in terms of AI technology, just in terms of sort of a global international relations. What does that mean? Well, it is extraordinary the way that China has built pattern recognition into all sorts of systems in its structure, and and that is because, of course, the values of China are very different from the values in the United States. You know, when you ask people in China about the use of AI for this kind of purpose, they talk about, you know, they don't use words like control; they use words like stability. Right? We're trying to keep everyone safe. So you have systems like their social credit system, in which it's the equivalent of if you and I, you know, were to feed our Twitter handles and our email password into a government-run system, and then that system actually evaluates how you behave online and winds up dinging your credit score if you are deemed by the state to have misbehaved. Now, you know, the thing is, I've told that story, you know, I've been at gatherings where American entrepreneurs were introduced to the idea of the social credit system. Some of them say, my God, how horrific, you know, what a what a terrible Orwellian thing that is. Others say, wow, that's an interesting idea. Maybe <laughs> we should do that in this country, right? So the push to efficiency is one of the big things that we're looking at here. And you know, depending on on how you look at things, that can be good or bad. But right now, you know, we we've had as many people have pointed out to me, efficiency rules the day, and that is unfortunately getting in the way of applying some values, some human values to this stuff before it it works its way into our lives. In addition to being aware of efficiency and what's that doing to our lives and the need for all of us to perhaps take a step back, what are some of the other ways that people can fight back against where this is all going? Well, you know, on an individual basis, it's very hard. These technologies, by their essence, operate at scale. And just because you decide not to, you know, play into the patterns anymore doesn't mean that the predictive algorithm still won't be able to identify everybody else's patterns. But I do think that we are seeing greater and greater literacy in the part of, on the part of elected officials. Maybe not the officials themselves, but the staff members, the the counselor, you know, the the people who are counseling them. Um, you have some very smart people coming in. You know, I interviewed at one point a, a, a representative, a member of the House of Lords in England, who was part of the Good Friday Accords. He helped create the Belfast Agreements, and he said it took them years to figure out even where everyone was going to sit. Right at the table. So for me, I don't think this is a thing we're going to solve in the next couple of quarters. But I do think we needed to draw a distinction between, you know, let's say being addicted to your Peloton, which can be good for your health, and being addicted to online gambling, where you blow your entire retirement. The same circuitry is being touched. The same kind of marketing principles are being used, and the same technology is being applied. As a country, I think we need to learn to draw a line between those two things. And right now, we're not doing that. Is that the biggest vulnerability? And that is people who are particularly susceptible to gambling or various addictions and essentially blowing their money. Well, a lot of companies would love to spend a lot of money to be able to get AI to find those people to suck them in, knowing, well, this company's gonna make a fortune off of these poor souls. That certainly is the the worst example. Those are the most predatory companies that I've bumped into. But I also would just point out, if you're a marketer with the power of pattern recognition technology at your disposal, and you have a choice between selling to the part of my brain that is instinctive and ancient and makes most of my decisions and obeys all these patterns, versus choosing to try to sell to the part of my brain that is slow and careful and cautious and individualized, 
all of that, you know, I think that the choice is clear. So all of us, I think, are susceptible to being sold to and manipulated in this way. We are all responding to this in some way, in a very similar way. And so I think we all need to recognize our own susceptibility and and get out in front of it while we can. Jacob Ward, technology correspondent for NBC News, former editor in chief of Popular Science. I also had the uh, pleasure to work with Jake at Al Jazeera America. And his new book is called The Loop, How Technology is Creating a World Without Choices and How to Fight Back. Jake, congratulations on the book and all the terrific work you've been doing. Thanks so much for joining us. David, my great friend, thank you so much for having me. You got it, and that'll do it for this edition of The Conversation. On behalf of Asher Cofield, Gina Kim, and the rest of the gang at the Young Turks, I'm David Schuster. Thanks for watching.